This episode of the Restoration Today podcast is brought to you by Actionable Insights. Actionable Insights is the restoration industry's leading educational nonprofit, helping contractors and carriers settle claims on the daily. Go to getinsights.org. Hey, Restorers, thanks for checking out a fresh episode of the Restoration Today podcast. Today, I'm excited to have somebody new joining the podcast, somebody who comes from outside the industry, but is going to bring, I think, some really valuable insight for restorers who are, who do kind of the trauma scene, biohazard, crime scene cleanup. So I'm joined by Dr. Jan Canty. She is a psychologist, an author, a speaker, and a fellow podcast host. She's the author of a book called What Now? Navigating the Aftermath of Homicide and Suicide. I came across Dr. Canty um, through a blog that I saw that was, she was writing about the ethical lines that um, some restoration companies do cross when it comes to handling crime scene and trauma scene cleanup. And I know that all the restorers listening to this know that that, that happens and are aware and there are some that are very annoyed that that happens and some also that maybe are doing things that they don't realize are ethically not right or something that could be actually hurting their customers not helping their customers so dr canty thank you very much for being here i am going to toss it over to you to have you introduce yourself and share a little bit about your background and how you came to be kind of an expert maybe unfortunately but fortunately in this field uh, my background is that I'm originally from Detroit, and back in 1985, my husband was murdered. It was a very highly publicized crime, so I ended up leaving altogether, and for 30 years, I did not speak of it to a soul. Nobody knew, but I have a relative who I absolutely love who does crime scene cleanup, biohazard recovery, who recommended that I start a podcast for other homicide survivors, and at first, I'm like... I don't think so. I don't know anything about podcasts, but she persisted and I did it. And I'm so glad I did. And she ended up uh, assisting me, you know, more about the crime scene cleanup industry because my husband was not murdered in our house. So I didn't have to deal with that. But since that time, I have been studying it from a different angle. And that is some of my podcast guests who've had that happen to them. And I've also attended a national conference for biorecovery workers and got to meet many of them there. So I come at it from a couple of different ways. Okay. All right. And how long ago did you write your book? Talk a little bit about your book and the different topics that you cover in there. The book, What Now, just came out this year. Okay. It's 450 pages. It starts, it's kind of organized linearly with the death notification dealing with the media, what friends can do in the early hours, like keeping you safe, keeping the media away, then talking about the media, the investigation, crime scene cleanup, uh, testifying. Not everybody gets called to testify, but some do. And then later on, you know, we talk about things like grief and the financial fallout, which is horrendous. And most people don't even think about that down to you know funeral planning. There's just so many angles to cover, which is how it ended up being longer than I expected. And then it kind of ends up down the road. Uh, the last chapter, last two chapters is dealing with the parole of the convicted and advocacy for others. And what else? So your husband was murdered outside of your home. So what, what was it like for you as the victim, even though it didn't happen in your home, kind of navigating the days, weeks, months, years after that? I know that, um, you know, restoration companies hopefully know that it's so important to keep anonymity of people, even though you didn't have anything happen in your home, people who maybe do have 
um, crime and trauma scene cleanup happen in their home, that anonymity aspect is really important or protecting the details of the insured or the homeowner or whoever. So talk a little bit about that and kind of your experience of your life since then. It's a whole book right there. Um, uh, yeah. even, <laughs> even though it did not happen under my roof, the media exposed every detail they could possibly expose up to and including a map to my house on the cover of the Detroit News. Every little nuance was in the paper. They waited outside the morgue when I had to go in to identify him. They disrupted his funeral. They came into my office. They interviewed my neighbors. You name it, they did it. So I felt re-traumatized by the media, and I know what that feels like to be exposed after a murder, not by a crime scene cleanup company, but by the media. And it is very scary. You don't know what's going to come of that. In my case, I, it caused people to come by the house and point and have their pictures taken. They stole things from the outside of my house. And that, and I could no longer afford to live there. I had just, I mean, within days, finished my postdoctoral fellowship. So I had no income to speak of. So I had to sell the house. I, there was no, and I didn't want to live there anyway for a lot of reasons. So it devalued my house. The attention that the media threw at me and the what we call, what we homicide survivors call death tourists devalued my house to the point where it sold 23% less than it should have. So wow. that's the impact that notoriety can bring. And it haunted me. They, After 18 months, they did not relinquish their investigation of me is how it felt. And I did not know till later that was because one of the people involved in the Detroit News wanted to write a book. So any little thing that happened, he just flared the flames of it and it wouldn't go away. So I ended up pulling up stakes and leaving, which I did not want to do. Detroit was my home. I had my friends there. My relatives were in the cemeteries there. I had a lot of positive memories about the city, but I just didn't think it was going to leave, let up. And so I ended up pulling up stakes and moving to a place where nobody knew me, which was easier to do back then because this was 1985 and there was no such thing as the Internet. But it felt good to get away. It felt good to have be in a place where nobody knew me at all and a place that was quiet and no media, no police no snoopers coming around. Uh, it, it was really two years, about 18 to 24 months later that I could start my grieving process hmm. because before that time, I was just putting out fires. If it wasn't the media, it was the investigation. If it wasn't that, it was bills. It just went on and on and my own health began to take a toll. Sure. So it was there was a lot on my plate. And it, like I said, it took a long, long time before I could even begin to process it and 30 years more before I could talk about it. Wow. What prompted the blog that you just wrote about um, the crime and trauma scene cleanup companies sometimes exploiting their customers? You had some good, I mean, you had actual cases in there and actual companies that are named. So what, what prompted that blog post specifically? Well, I hadn't had the blog too long. So one of the things that prompted it was I wanted to start out with some relevant posts. And I also had a guest on my show that I have come to know who talked about the crime scene cleanup that was done in her house and what the impact had on her. And so 
And I had not too long ago spoke at a conference for a crime scene cleanup. So I think it was the combination of all of that that prompted me to write it. And it, I, I had a very strong response. I, I think it was my most popular post. <laughs> Uh, it got picked up by, I saw it from people within the industry that were sharing it. So yeah, that's, oh. that's how I came across it, which was interesting. Um, okay. So share, so for people, people should go and read the blog and I will, Dr. J, what is um, Dr. Jancanti.com? Is that your, or jancantiphd.com? I'm sorry. I looked earlier. No, I can't it's remember. Close. It's uh, <laughs> www.jancanti with a C, jancantiphd.com. Okay. Perfect. So you can see the blog there and her other content. So please go and check that out and read the blog in its entirety. But um, can you share some of the stories that you've heard from some of the people that you've worked with of like the bad side of this industry sometimes? There's two that I can talk about. One occurred years before the industry was an industry. Mm -hmm. But uh, her, she was 16 years old at the time that there was a home invasion. Her father was just coming home from work. It was 4 a.m. And he had his bank deposit on him from his business. Mm. And he was attacked on his front stoop by two guys with automatic weapons. They killed him. They killed her sister, who was the first to uh, come behind the father to see what was the commotion about. Her mother got 40 wounds in her legs, but survived at least physically. She came down and slipped in all the blood and ran across oh the gosh. street to get her sister who was spending the night at a friend's house. One of the things that she talked about was how the churchgoers helped with the crime scene cleanup. She kept saying in the podcast interview, there was just so much blood. And the other thing that happened was that they, because they assaulted him on the doorstep, a lot of the bricks were blown away. And I don't know much about your work wow. and how typical it is to have bricks repaired or not. But she, all she told me was we couldn't afford to have them fixed. So she talked about, and they couldn't afford to move either because now they were down to her mother and she was the de facto head of the household at 16. So they couldn't move. And she talked about how difficult it was to, in her words, walk by the crime scene every day till they could get rid of that house three years later and see the bullet holes in the brick. The other person I had on was more recent and she wrote a book called While We Slept. And it's a story of how she and her new husband were spending the night at their in-laws, or maybe it was the other room, maybe it was her in-laws spending the night with them, but their in-laws, her in-laws were down the, the hallway. And her father-in-law, who was in his late 70s, was quite demented. And when his wife came in after grading papers at the nearby university, it was dark in the house. We don't know whether he mistook her for somebody else or what happened, but he took a hammer to her and killed her. And she talked about how the detective came by and ushered everybody out of the house and said, don't go back yet because it's a crime scene and the media is going to be on your butt, basically. So they left and they arranged crime scene cleanup for them. She talked about the fact because she was the least involved. I mean, it was her husband's parents so she was one step removed so she took it upon herself to go in the house first after the restoration had been done and she said she kind of straddled the fence she said on the one hand you know they did a lot of work you could tell but she said you could definitely still tell where the where the crime scene was and she said I took it upon myself to get spackling 
and to paint the ceiling because she could still see the red. That was her exact words. She said chunks of carpeting were gone. Chunks of the wall had been taken out, but nothing had been put back in its place. And, and she just talked about how horrifying that was, even though it was not directly a person in her family. And, and she said she tried to spare her husband uh, from that. And the, the person responsible for the murder didn't even understand he had done it. When the police mm -hmm. finally arrived, all he could talk about was wanting an orange. I mean, he was mm -hmm. that out of it. So she had kind of mixed feelings. She said, you know, I don't expect every crime scene cleanup crew to have the degree of reaction I did. They couldn't do their job if they did. On the other hand, how much more effort would it be just to take a white paintbrush and paint the ceiling? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and so she says, I don't know what was the norm. I don't know what to expect. I've never been in this situation. And that's typical for most homicide survivors. It's a brand new experience and they don't know what to expect. So what advice would you give the people who are listening to this, this podcast who do crime scene, trauma scene cleanup when they're going in? That's, it's a huge question, but maybe like from the beginning, how can they help from the very beginning in those very first careful interactions with survivors as they're going into the house, maybe looking at the scene for the first time? How would you recommend handling that? One of the things I would recommend is that they do not blare the name of what they do on the side of their vans mm -hmm. because once they pull up crime scene cleanup or biohazard that just draws more attention it would be wonderful if they drove up in a plain van because the neighbors might assume that they're with the police and stay away i would also recommend that they look at their contract and discuss with the homeowner or renter whoever it might be what is their policy on on uh, publishing before and after videos or before and after photos of their work. I understand it has to be done for insurance purposes, but I've seen some horrendous stuff on TikTok, which gets around this. I'll get on my soapbox about this one. It gets Go around ahead. community standards, which infuriates me and baffles me because yeah. I had a video taken down that was talking about the 23rd anniversary of 9-11. And all I did was show news footage of the second plane going into the tower. That's it. And they yeah. took it down for a violation of community standards for violence. But that can show brains and blood mm -hmm. and flies close up. I, I, it just baffles me. So one of the things that, and I, I do not believe that crime scene cleanup victim, or I'm sorry, that homicide victims are in a position to even give or deny consent for that. They're so, their head yeah. is in another place. It should just not be done, period. I don't believe their consent to such a thing is even valid at that moment because your head is in another place altogether. So that's something else that they can do. If by chance they have to go in there, and I, don't, I know they don't always have to, but if there are circumstances where they insist on it, I think the best way to do it is for the worker to go in there first take some snapshots, come out and say, and arrange them from the least offensive to the most graphic. And to say to that person, I'm gonna just explain to you what's in this photo before you view it. This is photo A, and it might be something benign like a, a shoe print on the front step or something, all the way up to including the most graphic. And then this is the next graphic one. Do you wanna see it? Yes, then they show them. Do you wanna see this one? 
yeah and then they go in the, the building because what you're doing is not only inoculating them from the stress of what they're about to see but equally important you're giving them control and that is vital because one of the things that happens when you are a homicide survivor is the floor just took just crashed out from beneath you it caved in you don't have control of anything in your life and it's wonderful to feel like somebody's giving it back to you and saying you have some say in this do you want to do this or not and and let them make the decision and as you will know probably better than myself the time lapse between the murder and when they go in is very important too if it's three months and it's a hot humid florida house i wouldn't recommend they go in there but I understand if they own the house, they might have the legal right to do so. Yeah, that is, you are absolutely right. You are absolutely right. I love that advice of the pictures and going from the least graphic to the most first. That's a really good recommendation that I've never heard somebody say. That's, that is really wise. What are some of the red flags that you, um, that you see when it comes to crime and trauma scene companies kind of right away? You talked about the marked bands and things like that. Are there any other red flags that you kind of tell survivors about as they're, I'm, as they're kind of looking for a company to help with this? Well, I would first advise them to take, let's let's call the company Diamond Restoration. I'm just making that up. I would say, go look on social media for Diamond Restoration and see if you find any graphic videos on there, on TikTok, YouTube, whatever. And if you do, bypass them. Do not go with them. That would be one recommendation. Another is to see if they belong to the American Bio bio recovery association yep. and if not call bio recovery association and say what is your opinion of diamond recovery do you have any say one way or the other and um even and so if you end up going with them then a friend is really more likely to be in a position to do this than the homeowner because their head's not going to be in the right place but i would make it sure it's in the contract your your before and after videos of your crime scene cleanup will not be released to any social media or or used for any other purpose than insurance that needs to be right in the contract and i would have them view that the other thing i would encourage them to look for in the contract and make sure it's spelled out is that within a reasonable length of time and i don't know what that time would be a week two weeks that they are willing to come back if there's a problem and fix it for free sure. Sure. Um, and then uh, the estimate, I would have the estimate in writing and I would, if it seems exorbitant and they may not know that, um, I would call a, a second company and say, what do you, because they can vary widely, you know, what do you think of this amount that I've been charged? And um, I would ask them about their, um, do they have credentials that allow them to dispose of it in a medical waste place? Um, and I would also ask them if they felt it was important to do so, to ask them about their own um, respect for the dead. Like, what are you going to do? How do I know you're going to go in there and respect my my daughter's death scene? Or they might say, would you go in there and bring out my a photograph of my daughter that's on the mantle? That's critically important to me. And if the person seems like, oh, my God, I don't want to bother, that's a red flag. <laughs> but if they say, sure, I'd be glad to do it and bring it out. And I guess the bottom line I would say to anybody in your industry is treat it like a friend's death. How would you feel? Put yourself in the shoes. I'm not saying to the degree where you're going to be grieving and have insomnia over it, but just remember that we're not a file number in your in your file cabinet. 
that we are breathing human beings and it's an equal opportunity club and any one of us could join tomorrow. Yes, unfortunately, that is so true. Do you have any good like, um, stories that we've talk- spoken to survivors and the, the company who helped did really well or had some really good yes. best practices in place? Can you share a couple of those? Oh, I can't think of his name. He was in, he's out of Dallas-Fort Worth. I can't think of the name, but yes, it was actually a suicide, but he was called, and I learned this when I went to the conference, uh, he went to clean the home of this uh, family where the man took his life. The woman, the widow called him to clean up, and he did, and the man killed himself at his desk, and the chair could not be salvaged, so it had to be disposed of. And after he was all done with the cleanup, right before he invited her back in to inspect everything, he looked and he goes, that looks very empty. It looks mm-hmm. like I'm drawing attention to. So he just, excuse me, he just went to the next room and found a suitable armchair and put it in front of the desk just to fill up space so it wouldn't look so empty. And then he brought the wife in. And he said to her, this this chokes me up every time I hear it. He said to her, now if you want to, you can sit down and talk to him at the desk. Mm. He didn't have to do that. It took two minutes out of his day and cost him zero dollars. And it impacted her. It impacts me to know that there are people like that out there. Yes. Doesn't take a lot. That is a, that is a great story. And so, yes, again, something so little and shows, I think people that have that level of compassion, they've probably also done the job really well. They probably also very much know what they're doing and are following ABRA guidelines and industry best practices, those kinds of things. So Perfect. Well, Dr. Canty, anything else that you want to share? Any other stories or tidbits or anything before we wrap it up? I really appreciate your wisdom and your insight. I know that this is going to be valuable for restorers. I know that this is um, a point of frustration for the restorers who are trying to do it well. And there are other kind of yes. bad actors and I'm that trying, aren't doing it. And well. I'm trying to be a mouthpiece for the ones that do it well. Believe me, that's why yeah. I have a chapter in my book on it. That's why I did the podcast about it and so on. Yep. I guess just to understand that once in a blue moon, you probably already know this, but you're going to find a family that thinks they can do it themselves and then call you afterwards and, and say, whew, what was I getting myself into? What they need to do is that family needs help and they need, because now they're, they're, they've traumatized themselves. And I would just gently encourage them to get a hold of their victim advocate or a survivor homicide group or some other intervention specialist to deal with it and not blame themselves for quote re-traumatizing themselves because we're ignorant about what to expect it's news to us Mm -hmm. and i think some people do it because they want to bear witness to what happened in the same vein that they will go to the trial and sit through the horrid discussion of evidence that's why they're there it's not because they want the gore it's because they want to be witness to what happened it's like they're protecting the deceased. That's the it's that's the motivation behind it. And it's not always money related. And I think that's a misunderstanding on the part of the industry. There's more to it than that. Okay. All right. 
Well, thank you very much for being here again. I really appreciate it. Again, for those who are listening, you can go to Jan Canty with a C, PhD.com. You can find out about her book and her blog and her podcast and everything there. I have appreciated looking through her wealth of knowledge there. And Dr. Canty, I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I do appreciate it. For more restoration today and the latest news, visit our website, cnrmagazine.com and find the latest episodes of the Restoration Today podcast on your favorite podcasting platform.